Hi-de-ho, you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Today, I bring you part two of my best of series. Part one, we heard a selection of some of my favorite personal stories I've told on the show. But this show really isn't about me. It's about my guests and their stories. Stories about what it means to be a filmmaker, and really, what it means to be any kind of an artist. As I announced on Tuesday, Radio Film School is now part of the Podcastica Network. Think of it as a sort of indie label for podcasts. Most of the shows on the network are related to pop culture TV shows, so Radio Film School fits right in. I wanted these two best of shows to be a sort of primer and introduction to Radio Film School. But even if you've been listening to the show for a while, I have no doubt you'll still find these episodes enjoyable and insightful. As usual, I want to thank the sponsors who help keep the show going. First, Song Freedom is the premier resource for licensing music for your productions. Everything from indie bands to mainstream tunes to oldies but goodies and cinematic sound scores. Go to songfreedom.com radio and use offer code radio to unlock a standard go-level license worth $30. We're also sponsored by Muse Storytelling from Still Motion. This is the process they use to tell stories that help them go from shooting weddings to producing videos around the world for some of the highest profile brands. Go to learnstory.org and use the offer code radio and you'll save $47 off lifetime access. We thank Song Freedom and Muse Storytelling for their support. Now let's kick off part two of our best of series with a funny little anecdote about one guest's eye-opening discovery about The Wizard of Oz. Take one, take ten, marker. But I think the movie that affected me the most, and the first time I ever saw it, uh, was it was on television. Because um, I grew up in a farm. About That's the voice of Tom Wyland. Tom is the co-producer on the sci-fi original web series called Sky City Haya, currently in production. He and the series director and creator Adad Warda were two of the first filmmakers I interviewed for this show. We'll be hearing more from them and their amazing project later on in the season. But Tom had the most interesting story behind his history on watching The Wizard of Oz. And when we saw it, we used to gather as a whole bunch because there's seven children in the family. So we'd all sit around a TV set and we didn't have a color TV set. So we had a black and white TV set. So at the time, we didn't even know that Oz changed. That's good. <laughs> We had no idea that Oz had changed to this colorful world, and my parents never even told us. So we would every year have this sort of, or you know, kind of uh, screening of the Wizard of Oz. And then I remember when we, when we eventually got a color TV set, and we all sit down to watch the movie, and none of us had any idea that the the movie would change <laughs> to color. And we sit down, and I remember all of us just like our eyes wide open, and we were just reacted in such a magical way. It was just. It wasn't only watching the movie, but it was my brothers and sisters and everybody together, and we all like went, "Oh my God!" So that's how the movie is. It's like in color in this section. So at that time, <laughs> even when you sat down and watched it, you didn't you didn't have any expectation that it was going to switch the color. No, we didn't. No. And then when it hit, it was like, "Oh my goodness!" That story still trips me out to this day. Honestly, it was hearing that story back in July or whenever I recorded it that made me want to do this special episode in the first place. I thought to myself, I will make up some reason to do a Wizard of Oz special just so I can highlight that story. 
There are a number of guests on the show who are on frequently. And other than yours truly, no other person shows up on the show more so than my good friend J.D. Cochran. As I've mentioned multiple times before, he and his wife Yolanda were originally going to be regular weekly co-hosts. But Yolanda's work as a production contractor at Netflix precluded her involvement in the filmmaking podcast. Once her time at Netflix was up, I was able to get her on and some of the most entertaining episodes have been with the three of us going at it. But one of the episodes where it was just me and JD had a discussion about the very first film he and I ever worked on over 20 years ago. It was a film that I kind of referred to as my black when Harry met Sally. It was called Just Friends. JD was a co-producer in DP. Now in this clip, he gives me a little grief about the actress they picked for the short. Now to give you some context, JD and I are both black. Well, technically he's mixed. His mom is white. But if you were to listen to both of us talk and you didn't know what we looked like, I'm guessing you'd right away know that he was a brother. I, on the other hand, don't necessarily share that rich African-American tonal quality. And it was the topic of vocal quality and diction that happened to be the topic of this conversation slash discussion slash debate. In talking about the audition and, you know, one of the themes I've been exploring this season is, you know, the idea of style. And so I think one area where you see style for sure is in acting and actors. And, you know, you were mentioning Miata a couple of times. I remember like one of the reasons, like the specific reason why I picked her was because like everyone else that I remember, like everyone else who had who did well, who read for the role, kind of played a certain way that for me kind of felt stereotypical angry black woman. Uh-huh. And like Miata was the only one who who did this really subdued, reserved like I remember the scene was it, I remember the scene that was the side was where she, where the girlfriend discovers that the boyfriend slept with the best friend the day after they had broken up. Yeah. And um, the line was something like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean she was just jealous? Like referring to like the girlfriend and like the main character is like realizing that her ex now who's a friend slept with her best friend the day after. And like everyone else was like, you know, rolling their heads. Like, what do you mean? And, and like Miata was like just this subdued, like, what do you mean? Right. Well, I would say this though, but that's right. something also that you got to think about because you could have, I mean, it, once you got into rehearsal, whenever, right. may, you, maybe don't, you have them not hit it as hard. Because I, I don't know that she was, she was subdued, but in my mind, she was also very um, valley girlish. Because uh-huh. one of the other sisters were very sisters. She, to right, me, right. wasn't just subdued. And uh, to me, she had a style herself, which was True. very... Because her line, which we still laugh about today, like, did you sleep with her? And it was like <laughs> a very valley girlish, oh, my God. And so it's like, it wasn't... Wait, wait, no, no, no. Dude, no, you're remembering that wrong. That was not Miata. Miata was not the one who was, did you sleep with her? I know who, who you're talking Who said that? I don't remember her name. No, no, dude, no, Ron, No, it's in the Go Look at Your Film. I can't. It's on high eight. I can't dude, transfer that. Dude, we clown that Yolanda. Everybody, dude. I'm telling you. Okay, you no. call up Yolanda. Call up Yolanda right now. And it was All her. Right. First of all, my apologies to the audience while we kind of hash this out. Right. Listen, I'm, I'm telling, telling you. Right, as, right here sitting in this chair, I guarantee you. No, I... Just look at your film. Go look at your film. Don't take my word for it. That's I what- agree that one of that part of like her style was more of that 
Valley Girls style. But there was so one. Saying, so that being said, you're going to argue now. Yeah, because listen, because listen, just uh, listen. Now you're argue that she didn't have no, that take. No, no. My point is that <laughs> <laughs> my point is the person you're talking about. There was this other woman who came out, and because I remember we used to tease because she would look into the camera after saying her line. And she was the one that was like over the top valley girl. Did you sleep with her? And we're gone. That all right. Me, okay. Dude, I'm telling you. Okay. Well, well I, I'll have to try. But, to... But, here's the, but here's the thing. But, but you're going back to Stalwart because Mia is a good actress. She did really well. Sure, sure. But I'm absolutely. just saying, I think that got closer to what you were, Thank I don't know, you were more comfortable with or what you were vibing with. And right. But for me, I always remember that sticking out of my head. And I didn't say anything. I mean, that was your choice or whatever. But to me, that was something, the reason I'm so adamant about it is because I remember right. that I would have probably given a note there. like Right, right, right. But, you know, I was I was, I was was a camera guy and lightning. Like, <laughs> you know, cool. And, you know, and again, she's a good actress. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you let it roll. That's the vibe. That's the flavor you're going for. That's what it is. I remember in middle school, I was in art class, and the girl across from me, all of a sudden she stopped her work, she leaned across the table, and she looked at me and she said, don't be offended, but you don't really talk black. And I'm like, I don't really know how to respond to that. I mean, what does that mean? It's not so bad Being on your own That's a scene from my personal project, Mixed in America, Episode 1, Little Mixed Sunshine. The documentary is based on an interview with my biracial daughter that I conducted over five years ago. I think this clip speaks for itself as my then 16-year-old daughter recounted the story of one of her non-black friends saying how she doesn't sound quote-unquote black. In the wrong context, like here for instance, a statement like that comes across as ignorant and maybe even borderline racist. However, in a completely different context, say in the title of a podcast episode, it's actually funny and quite frankly apropos. In one of my earlier Short Ends episodes, I tackle the issue that I, too, don't sound quote-unquote black. The name of the episode was actually Do I Sound Black? After a funny Brady Bunch clip wherein I compare the sound of my voice to Peter Brady, we hear from spoken word artist Marshall Davis Jones again. If you listened to part one of the show, you heard Marshall talk about the making of his Spelling Father spoken word TEDx performance. The deep richness of Marshall's voice immediately betrays the fact that Marshall, too, is African-American. But the reason I had Marshall on this Short Ends episode was to tell the story of how his voice didn't always sound like that. He actually purposefully trained his voice to have that deepness and richness to it. In this excerpt from our Do I Sound Black Short Ends episode, Marshall tells the funny story of how he was first trying out his deep voice on actor John Leguizamo. Check it out. First, I was learning by imitation. So, it's a funny story. We had an event um, where we were honoring John Linguizamo at the um, at the New Yorkian, right? So New Yorkian, so John is in the John John's downstairs, right? <laughs> and I'm in my trying to learn my voice mode. So, so I walk up, and I'm like, "Hi, John," and like he looks at me like, "The fuck? What the, the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, why is he talking to me like that?" 
my my name is Marshall Davis Jones. It was just very like, like I was like, oh hail Caesar, like you know, like very. Um, and I talked like this for a very long time. And I remember, um, you know, I remember one time because I used to uh, I used to sell CDs, like I used to sing in nail salons uh, to women to to sell the CD I'd made a long time ago. But one day, like, I went in to the to the nail salon. I'm talking to the lady. And I'm like, you know, so I have my CD, you know, I'm like, <laughs> and, and she's like, uh, why are you talking like that? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, this is my natural voice. <laughs> she was like, she was like uh, no, it's not. Like, I, like, and I was like, and I was like, I tried to pull the like, I'm learning this from acting school. She's like, <laughs> she's like, <laughs> and she's basically calling me on my shit. Cause she's like, so first of all, I've gone to acting school and I've done voice work and that's not your natural voice. <laughs> and, um, you know, I definitely tried to deny it. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know. <laughs> So there was the first phase of like, what the hell is wrong with Marshall? <laughs> like that was the first phase, right. you know. But then it, um, then uh, once I kind of got a bit more comfortable with, um, I guess my own voice, uh, then people would just say, "Yo, did your voice get deeper?" Um, you know, it just became like that became the thing. But you know, I would, I would, I would, uh, I would stay up all night. I mean, I would break night listening to different voices that I liked. Like I would listen to Barry White, I would listen to Ian McKellen, I would listen to Benedict Cumberbatch, I would listen to Morgan Freeman. I basically listen to people who are renowned for the quality of their voice, trying to solve the puzzle for what it was that made their vocal quality so amazing. So I had like 2,000, maybe 3,000 voice notes in my iPhone. Crazy, man. You know, talking to my phone to try to figure that out. You know, it's a continuous process. I look at my voice as an instrument, and so it's like the way that someone would study guitar for their whole lives. You know, um, I'm very adamant about studying, you know, my voice until it becomes a very, you know, um, like studying all of it, and then when it's time for me to use it, then I have a very natural frame of reference to draw from, and I don't sound like, you know, I try to shove... Um, Romeo and Juliet into my, <laughs> you know, right, right, uh, yeah, man. So that's uh, so. Yeah, to answer the question about as far as it being a continuous process, uh, yes, um, <clears throat> it's not as grueling as it used to be. That episode really served double duty. It was partly just another fun and funny way for me to be self-effacing, but it was also meant to be a lesson on the discipline of working hard to improve one's craft. I have no doubt you'll find it fun and inspiring. No matter how much you work on your craft, and no matter how prepared you are, when you work on a film set, there's always a chance that something can go wrong. Using outer space as a metaphor, I explored this topic with three different filmmakers in my Plan E from Outer Space Short Ends episode. Now, any movie aficionado will clearly see that the title is a riff on the classic cinematic disaster Plan B from Outer Space. Directed by Ed Wood, it is largely regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. In this flashback to one of the earlier Short Ends episodes, you'll learn why I entitled it Plan E from Outer Space and why I use an outer space metaphor in the first place. Here we go. 
Engage. What's going on, Merv? Why did you and Mom leave me after something that's bad? Well, we didn't. Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar tells his young daughter Murph, who is named after the infamous law by the same name, that Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen, but that... Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. What it means is that whatever can happen will happen, and that sounded just fine with us. Well, tell that to this guy. UFO Yeah was the one that was a nightmare. It was crazy. I'm sure most of you recognize the voice of Ryan Connolly there. Ryan is creator and host of the filmmaking DIY juggernaut that is Film Riot on YouTube. I've never done a production where literally everything went wrong. We oh, had, really? like, what? Oh, man, it was nuts. Like, even in pre-production, things were falling through. That was like, why did that This summer, he and his team put on a massive educational and entertaining undertaking called Film Riot Epic Summer, where he invited a few directors to come in and each director's short film and talk about their experiences. His film was the first one they shot, and it was called UFO Yeah. But I think their insults and rock throwing were just a defense mechanism. They know I'm close to the truth, and that makes them uncomfortable. But despite that small hiccup, I was able to find remnants of extraterrestrial activity within the mile radius. In it, Ryan's brother, Film Riot regular Josh Connolly, plays the large, rotund, stereotypical conspiracy theorist nerd who has an hilarious encounter with a real UFO. Naturally, there were a lot of visual effects in the film, so the technical difficulty was already high. And, as luck would have it, Murphy's Law was in full effect. And despite Mr. McConaughey's definitions, this was the bad Murphy's Law. We bought a hazer, and uh, it was a brand new, you know, DF-50 hazer. We bring it on set. We use it for a few hours. All of a sudden, it starts leaking everywhere. The internal uh, tank was uh, hemorrhaged, and it was like punctured or whatever. It was leaking everywhere. So we had to put this pan on the floor and, and sit it in this pan and, and use it. And as it leaked out the fluid, then we would pour it back in and put it back <laughs> in the pan. And we had to do this for the entire shoot to get it to work. One of the lights that we rented to get that like very focused UFO beam of light, right. um, the, 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 the rental that we got it from forgot to add in the ballast for the HMI, so we couldn't even use it. Yeah, and we were like four hours away from the rental house, so we couldn't go get it. We bought these big industrial fans, uh, and every single one of them came damaged for whatever reason. <laughs> so I had uh, my producer out there with a, with a like a little mallet, a rubber mallet, banging out these huge dents inside of it so the fan could even turn. It got to the point to where every new thing that happened, I just couldn't help but laugh. It was just crazy. We rented this uh, this cherry picker, this big, um, you know, this big lift, and uh, <clears throat> it gets there without gas. So we had to send it back for them to put gas in it and bring it back. Then it comes time to use it and it won't turn on because it was so cold, I guess. I, I'm not really sure why it wouldn't turn on. I've never shot plan A ever. Um, and I don't know. I, I doubt anyone ever has. That's just, you know, how production goes. You always have to stay flexible and, you know, adjust for what happens. Nothing goes according to plan. But I've never shot plan E before. It's usually like plan B at, at, at most plan C. I was like on plan E at, at the end of the second day. And this was the one time that I shot where there were times where I was not having fun, which yeah. isn't usual for me. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm always having fun, especially because when the way we usually shoot is very, very 1,000 miles an hour. 
Yeah. Um, but there were there were at times where so much was going wrong where I was just thinking I don't even want to do this anymore. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and it's when, almost, when you say it, you don't want to do this, meaning that project or just filmmaking in general. That project. I oh, mean, there's okay. there's always those times when right. it's getting so stressful and so harsh where you where you think, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> right. But then you finish it and you're like, oh yeah, that's why. As the director on set and everything, I got you know the mood is going to be set by me. So right. I have to always be you know joking around and don't worry about it. And, hey, we got this. And but inside, I'm like, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. <laughs> I think somebody asked me, I don't remember, I think it was on a panel or something, and how do you measure success? And, you know, I said, I don't really measure success in, uh, you know, how many views something gets. I, I measure success in how much I learned. Uh, because, you know, the harder it is and the more it fails in different ways, the more I feel like I learn. So, my friends, what is the moral of all of this? Well, I can really think of no better way to end a segment and answer this question than with that of a British accent. I found that British accents add a certain level of authority and gravitas to any moral of a story. And of course, what better Brit to end a segment about filmmaking than that of world-renowned DP and epic camera reviewer, Philip Bloom. I think being a perfectionist is a, is a, um, is a mixed blessing. Are you a perfectionist? I'm a, a failed perfectionist, I think, like most people are, because there's no such thing as perfection. As long as you aim for perfection and, and then understand that you have to make compromises, then that's fine. I think that's the best thing. What you don't want to do is just go, ah, let's just do this, I can't be bothered. That's wrong. You should always try your very best and then let go. If you have to let go, let go. You know, if it means I, can't, I haven't got time to get the light exactly right, but we, we have people waiting and we have to go with it. And it happens and you have to let go. It's frustrating, mm. but you can't let it eat you up either. Just hold on. And I'm going to start pulling you in. Hey, Doc. Just hold on. Hang on. I am going to pull you in. Ryan, listen. Pull you in. You have to let me go. No. The ropes are too loose. Ryan, let go. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. If you've been listening to both parts of this best of series, you may have noticed something. Where are all the ladies? This has been an issue that has bothered me for a while, even dating back to another filmmaking podcast I produced a number of years ago. That is the dearth of female filmmaker guests on my shows. So I purposefully set out to interview a wide variety of women in the filmmaking and movie business, from directors to cinematographers to producers to journalists. It's part of an ongoing Women in Filmmaking series that we're doing here on the show. One of the most eye-opening and engaging conversations I had about the topic was with documentary filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon, who in 2013 won a Peabody Award for her interactive documentary, Hollow. Yet despite the fact that she's a Peabody Award-winning filmmaker, she still had doubts about whether or not she was qualified to be on radio film school. This provided fascinating insight into one possible reason why it's been hard getting female guests on my show. I think it was Ingrid Kopp, who's from the Tribeca Film Institute on our show, and she does. And she said that uh, she, as a curator, was trying to get women to be speakers at this event she's having. And she's always curating events. And, and 
it's the same as you. Like, you know, these women are like, no, you know, I don't really feel like I'm the person to be the authority on this. But like, the man always says yes to her, to to being the authority on it. What would I see when I travel far and wide? Would I see the world through another man's eyes? I love Elaine's honesty and authenticity as she wrestles with this topic. She's not pretending she has the answers. And in asking this question about how to change this, what follows is an interesting turn of events. I had a response to your answer regarding is there anything uh, women can do to have more parity? And you're saying that, you know, we probably should stop asking the question. And you commented on a cinematographer who <laughs> said we should stop asking the question. And, and whereas... Like, while I, I understand where that sentiment is coming from, I think that if you don't ask the question, that uh, you'll people will never look for the answer. And if it's a question that needs to be answered uh, and no one's asking it, um, then y- you have issues. And obviously, people are asking the question. So this isn't a case where people aren't asking the question. But I have wondered if part of the whole issue is, you know, related to what we were just talking about recently about – uh, intuitively how women think of themselves. Absolutely. Um, and so I think there's some of that going on. But um, so, I, yeah, I, I understand the not asking or to stop asking the question thing. But I think like I, I think, take it back. I think it's I think like we had a much better conversation because you asked the question. Yeah, yeah. No, and I it's, agree. And it's because. I think I just get tired of hearing it because yeah, I feel like I, I'm that, doing a lot. And sure. so I'm like, there's going to be women filmmakers out there who heard me say that, that are like, why are you saying this? Like, mm-hmm. we need to talk about this. But, you know, it's it's just my reaction that um, it's like beating a dead horse. But actually, you know, we just, we, you and I just reached, mm-hmm. you just made me think of something and say something that I don't think I've ever actually like wanted to admit out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, we do need to talk about it, so I've changed my mind. <laughs> oh, good, good for you, and good for you for, for admitting that. Here's the thing. So um, I have a few more years on you, so I, uh, I can bring some knowledge and wisdom to this. And, and hearing you talk, I think, and to be honest, like when you said, I think people need to stop asking the question, personally, I didn't think you really believed that. I think that's just how you worded the feeling of frustration of you're tired of hearing people talk about it. Um, and I think personally, I got my interpretation was like, that's how you worded it. And that's how you communicate it. Um, because being a person of color, uh, I have, you know, obviously, you know, the conversation at the forefront for me is, you know, the lack of parity for people of color in any industry and, you know, the kind of issues that African-Americans deal with in this country and whatnot. And, you know, there are times where I feel like, you know, black people just black folk just need to stop complaining about it and just do stuff. Right. Um, but when I say that or when I feel that, I know it comes from a frustration of we need some you hear, sometimes you see or you hear a lot of people talking about it who aren't doing anything. Right, and, and so it's. Are you the kind of person who's bitching and complaining, but you're not doing anything? Exactly. Versus a person who's bitching and complaining, and you're doing something, right? So, yeah, um, that's, that's totally true. Yeah, and, and I think there are people out there who fit in that former category where 
they like to be the person who's the poor me syndrome, right? Um, right. Versus, like, I don't get that impression from Jennifer Lawrence at all, right? No. She's not that person, but she represents the latter, the person who's saying we need to do something, and she's in the process of also doing something. And so, absolutely, I think it's striking that balance between. You know, having the you know the courage to speak your mind and say, "Look, this isn't fair. We need to we need to make changes, and how can we make that changes?" And then leading the cause to actually make the change. It's empowering to be around people who have claimed their voice, and many of the people that inspire me who have claimed their voice are men.、Um, there are certainly women that are out there that do that as well, but.、Um, Do I do think that's a problem? How do we? I don't know how we overcome this. Here again is Sheila Andreen, CEO of IndieFlix. Don't wait to be picked. I mean, it was men who picked me out of, you know, the crowd to do something. There are no. I mean, someone asked me once, "Who are your role models?" I don't have any women role models. I mean, there are women. I but they weren't the ones I actually knew and interacted with. They were all men. So I think as women, we should definitely pluck some other women out and and help them. So, my fellow filmmaking friends, what have we learned? One, women need to seek out mentors, whether they be men or women, to guide them where they want to go. Two, women in the position to do so should seek to be mentors to other women. And three, for lack of a better term, and I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but women need to act and think like men. It feels weird even saying that. I know, but tell me, what do you think? If you want to hear that entire episode, there are some riveting discussions and excerpts from other shows addressing this topic. It's on the blog at daredreamer.fm/wif3. That's as in women in filmmaking three. I try to end every episode with some profound thought, either from myself or a guest, something that encapsulates the essence of the episode, and it's no different for this best of series as it is for my regular episodes. So let's close out this series with a clip that gets to both the theme of the season and the purpose of the show. This clip contains the audio I chose to be the very first words you hear in my season one preview. There was a reason I selected that soundbite to introduce Radio Film School to the world, and it's only appropriate that I close this episode with those same words. They're from award-winning filmmaker Kevin Shahinian. Kevin is a USC Film School grad and one of the most celebrated wedding filmmakers on the planet. Kevin makes these amazing, highly produced wedding films and scripted films for his clients that have feature film-level production value. And in this clip, he addresses the question: How do you develop a signature style? In the creation of art,、um, it's all subjective. There's no right answer to how do you create a style, and is this style, you know,、uh, is this style authentic or good or whatever? Because we have these filmmakers who are, you know, intentionally borrowing, like Tarantino,、um, and and you know their their films are called great, and they they have put their own original spin on things, but there's clearly. Uh, things that are being borrowed. So, when you think about your style as a filmmaker, was it something that was sort of like an intentional thing? Like for you, like how would you describe your the development of your own style? You know, mostly out of a necessity to stand out. In the wedding and event 
video production industry, you're not creating anything. You're just capturing what's in front of your camera. You know, you have very little, very little um, influence over the actual story. So my style kind of developed out of a, a need to want to do that, and that being my strength as a sort of narrative production filmmaker. And it's very funny because I, I kind of like trace the the style of Hollywood directors over the last 10 years and what I've been trying to do and like how they kind of like crossing each other in the air, so to speak, where Hollywood has been taking great effort to create this documentary style for their $100 million movies um, and making things like found footage films and, you know, multi-cam and shaky cam and make everything look like it's being captured in the moment. Whereas I and others have been bringing a very cinematic polish to a live event. You know, apart from just, okay, applying this Hollywood slash Bollywood style to the wedding and event filmmaking, is there something specific in how you shoot or how you compose or how you make it that you feel kind of like speaks specifically to you? I don't know if I can put my finger on it uh, as finely, um, but I do, I do think that uh, it's super important to not only develop a voice, but kind of lend your point of view and interpret things. Uh, to me, that has the most value uh, in terms of selling, your, selling yourself as a filmmaker. So my fellow filmmaking friends, may you be inspired by these stories to go out and find your voice, to make your mark on the world with a point of view that moves and motivates others to live a better life, have a different perspective, or to just entertain and amaze. To quote Robin Williams from Dead Poets Society, who was really quoting Walt Whitman, you are here so that the powerful play goes on and you might contribute a verse. May you be inspired to contribute both your verse and your voice, either a figurative voice as a filmmaker or some other kind of artist, or your literal voice as a podcaster. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. Radio Film School is a production of Daredreamer FM. This Best of series was written and produced by me, Ron Dawson. Chris Huslidge is our co-producer. We're now a member of the Podcastica Network, a sort of indie label of great podcasts. Check out their family of shows at podcastica.com. Music was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. The show is sponsored in part by Song Freedom. When you need to legally license music for your production, look no further than songfreedom.com. Go to songfreedom.com slash radio to unlock a standard go-level license worth $30. We're also sponsored by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Learn the storytelling process that helped them go from shooting weddings to shooting the Super Bowl to winning five Emmys. Go to learnstory.org and use offer code radio to save $47 off lifetime access. Lastly, we're supported by you, the listener. Become a Daredreamer FM Premium member, and for a monthly price less than a venti gourmet coffee drink in a Manhattan Starbucks, you can get access to bonus episodes, ebooks, and templates to help you grow in your craft and career. Just go to daredreamer.fm/join to learn more. You've now heard a nice little cross section of the show. If you like, please go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a rating and review. Give others an opportunity to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. We'll be back next week with another episode. If not our Quentin Tarantino episode, it'll be another special episode that we already have edited and ready to go. 
a very cool collaboration with another storytelling podcast. You won't want to miss it. Until then, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Aloha. In today's bonus segment, we come to everyone's favorite segment of the show, my whimsical, wistful, often nonsensical, but always comical interactions with my good friend JD. I also like to call this show, How to Be a Black Filmmaker in the 90s. So here's the thing. JD was the inspiration for me to actually make the leap of faith into doing filmmaking full-time professionally. The very first time that I had called him, I had planned to ask him about that fateful evening. However, because we tend to go off topic and follow tangents like a dog chases squirrels, it would be the third or fourth hour-long phone call before we actually get to the topic that I originally planned to talk to him about in the first place. The topic of what he said that prompted me to pursue filmmaking full-time. Here we go. So one of the things that I've been wanting to talk to you about is, um, you know, I've written in my bio how, like, you were the impetus for me starting video video production professionally. Mm -hmm. And you say you don't remember the story. (laughs) So. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank right now. I'm like, okay, we're fine. I'm like excited like the audience. Like, okay, yeah, we're going to hear it. What is this? <laughs> All right, so it was January 2012. I mean 2012. <laughs> January 2002. And so we were at the tail end of one of our usual three, four-hour conversations slash discussions slash debates about right. something. I know we were talking about filmmaking because it's what prompted this question. I was talking about my passion for filmmaking, wanting to do it. And you said, you know, so like, like, what do you want to do career wise? And I said, well, like, ultimately, I want to write a feature film and do a feature film. And at the time, I was working at Intuit, a business marketing manager. And you said, okay, cool, cool. So how, how are you going to do that at Intuit? And it was like this profound moment where it was like, <laughs> okay, uh, that's a good point. Um, cause my original plan, like the way I was thinking it would go down would be like, cause I was making a really good salary it was yeah. like at Intuit, like six feet. I'm like, you idiot. You left Intuit? What did you? <laughs> my plan was to like work it into it and then like write a feature film script on the side and then get it to then like get discovered and then like have this, then like get signed on by a studio and then when I get signed on by a studio, I would quit into it. Like, that was my plan. Right. How many filmmakers do you know? I know, it's a common path. That's how it happens. <laughs> right. You work at McDonald's, you know, wherever. You work at some job. Right. Work on the side. You know, you just whoop-de-whoop, you know, scribble a script together. <laughs> right. Slide it on in to exact, Eureka! And I next got thing it. you know, you've got a, you a five-picture deal at Sony. <laughs> So, so basically, the, the message was like, if you really want to be serious about this, you really got to dive in. And um, like at the time, the name of my company was like, uh, like Jump Creek Entertainment, and it was about like jump, like basically, it was that. yeah, it was about jumping over your fears and facing your fears. And and I was, and you had said you're not even living up to the name of your company because you're too afraid to just do it. And like I think that was like the thing that like really put me over. It's like that's a bitch. Okay, I'm gonna have to put the e explicit logo on this iTunes. 
kids might want to leave the room now. <laughs> Are you joking? So now that you know, you were the inspiration for me starting filmmaker. How does I, I do remember. I do remember. Have I didn't realize that it made that big of an impact on you. I thought that because uh, I cause yeah because I, cause even you, at I the quit time six figure job. Thanks, Jesus. No, no, no. <laughs> because at the time you were already. It seemed like waffling, or you know, like you were like you know. I could tell you already wanted to do this stuff. I mean, that's why we're having a conversation. You were right. I, I didn't feel like I pushed you over. I felt like you were like, <laughs> you know, already there. Uh, well, I, I don't know, maybe not, but we, it well, was, no, I I mean, was. I mean, we had a long what... conversation about it and I didn't realize it, uh, that my words were cause it, you know, if you would have told me somebody else inspired you, whatever, I would have been, Oh yeah, it makes sense. Cause we talked about it or, you know, but I didn't know that it was, you're, you're attributing me to being uh, a primary force in that. And I'm like, huh, okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that I was, but I, I hope it worked out for you. Don't hold yeah. it against me. I mean, yeah, it did cause blank. you. Six figure, yeah. I, if I'd have known you were going to do that, I'd been wrong. What you want to do is stay into it for about, first of all, buy a lot of stock and into it as long as you can while you're there. Stay in it for like, you know, five or six years, maybe 10. Work on that script <laughs> right. on the side, like you're talking about, uh -huh. you know, and then, you know, see, see what happens. So the year I started my business, I quit my job, got married, became a stepdad, and started the business all in the same summer. Not necessarily the path I would recommend. But it's worked okay for me so far. In my conversation with Ryan, he shares how a recent short film. In my conversation with Ryan, he shares how a recent short horror film he recent. In my conversation with Ryan, he shares how a recent short horror film he shot was incredibly influenced by Hitchcock's Psycho, and he didn't even realize it.